Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. In August 1967, the Beatles hitched their wagon to Maharishi Manesh Yogi, or the Maharishi for short. In under nine months, his association with the band transformed them, but it also set off a chain reaction of changes all around the world. It was such a short time that they spent directly involved with the Maharishi. I make it about 36 weeks in and around, uh, but it, it was a game changer. Yes, and you think, yes, I always think of it as being, you know, a year, 18 months. It seems like a long time in terms of the effect that it had on their career. Even today, you know, the association seemed to be greater than the, the amount of time yeah, and it's 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 that recurrent theme that you know whenever we pull any kind of subject apart is that a you know a Beatles day seems to be a normal person's month <laughs> that an awful lot happens in 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 the Beatle universe in a very short period of time, and um, so what we're going to do across uh, two parts is look at how the band uh, associated with the Maharishi and uh, you know in this first part we'll kind of focus in on how they get drawn in in the second part we'll focus on you know, once they're embedded in India and, and what happens after that. Where where does it all begin? Is there a specific date or time where we can say this is when the Maharishi popped up on their radar or whose radar did it pop up on? Well, we're dealing with uh, that period of late 1966 into early 1967 and really, you know, take your pick. Patty Boyd in her fantastically named uh, Wonderful Today uh, autobiography, puts it very specifically to a Sunday in February 1967 where she and her friend are leafing through the Sunday papers and thinking they'd like to do something spiritual. Um, I mean, she actually puts it in those terms. When they come across an ad for transcendental meditation classes, they sign up and that's the, uh, that's the trigger. Her, Patty's sister... Uh, Jenny Boyd, uh, Jennifer Juniper, she actually puts this back into 1966 while George was away on the 1966 tour. So is that prior to August, 29th of August, 1966? So somewhere between those two points. Because I guess the, the thing that might make the Maharishi seem like a longer experience is that, you know, in parallel to this, you have George's kind of Indian experience. So we've had Norwegian Wood at the end of 65 and the sitar appearing on that. And people had, people were amazed, Stephen. They'd never heard a sitar before, which just seems crazy. Unless, as you, unless, unless, as you say, they'd listened to the Help soundtrack in America. I, uh, yes, and you know, and had lived um, somewhere else, um, but but you know that really does come to the fore. Then you know you think Revolver comes out in August '66, just before uh, the American tour, and that's got Love You Too on it, and that is very much in your face. This isn't the sitar as a kind of colourful background. This is a full-on immersion in in Indian music. So in some ways, you could argue it's it's a wonder that something like uh, the Maharishi didn't appear you know, earlier at this point in time, or that if, if George is, you know, beginning his uh, association with Ravi Shankar, that some of that stuff hadn't uh, been flagged before summer 67. Yeah, I think I think you're right when you say that it's the Indian music really uh, extends 
in 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 public perception mm. anyway you know the beatles have started to go a bit funny in 1966 and then it's kind of spills over into 67 and 68 what i would say about patty boyd's book is not mm. necessarily great on some of the detail and some of the timeline you know uh, and of course you know if you were writing a book about your life you're you, uh, and then somebody's coming along and comparing it and critiquing it and this isn't quite what happened or this is the wrong date or something but i i think my instinct is to go more with jenny boyd and say this is something that was late 66 mm. and the other thing that george does is once you know they hit candlestick park and they have their the four of them go off and do their own things for a couple of weeks. George goes to India. He does this yeah. trip. It's the the trip where there's the famous George selfie in front of the Taj Mahal that uh, constantly seems to pop up on my Twitter feed every two or three months. Is is this the first selfie ever? And you're like, oh, geez. Yes, he invent he invented <laughs> the selfie. <laughs> he did, and you know, he was he was he loved technology so much. I'm sure he'd be very happy at uh, being the, uh, the 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 leader of selfie culture. But he was in uh, India in September 1966, and you know, it's I'd have to imagine it's impossible to be there at that point in time with an open mind and not you know, beyond the music, except some of the spiritualism that's going on around you. I think that's right. And I think it is so much a part of the music. Yeah. So the idea is that Patty, you know, in, in the, at the first part of 67 kind of plugs into the meditation and then the, the, the big sort of first meeting doesn't happen till August. So what are the, the kind of the stepping stones that kind of get us from, you know, this being on Patty's peripheral vision to the Beatles getting in front of the, the Maharishi. So they had been persuaded by Jenny Boyd that uh, San Francisco, this was really the place to be, that this was the new centre of youth culture, that it was full of beautiful people. And uh, she writes in her book that it took three or four months for them to get there after she'd written to them, and that during this period, it, the whole nature of the scene changed from just being the beautiful people to being... Uh, it became a magnet for just dropouts across America and everybody's heading to San Francisco. Um, so leaving aside the fact, you know, of who encouraged these people to come to San Francisco, um, uh, you know, it's people like the Beatles and the Stones and they are all saying, you know, the youth culture and you've got to drop out and turn on and tune in and all the rest of it. Um, so George, they get there and... Uh, what Patty Boyd says is we were expecting Hit Ashby to be special, a creative, artistic place filled with beautiful people, but it was horrible, full of ghastly dropouts, bums and spotty youths, all out of their brains. Everybody looked stone, and they were so close behind us, they were treading on the backs of our heels as we walked through Hit Ashby. It got to the point where we couldn't stop for fear of being trampled. Somebody said, let's go to Hippie Hill, and we crossed the grass, and they all looked at us expectantly as if George was some kind of messiah. And this this whole experience seems to have really turned George against the hippie culture, against the drug culture. He could see what it was doing, and I think for all that they had this huge following all over the world, and they're the, the clearly aware of their influence, this was sort of in his face that they were the Beatles were in a way responsible for this, for people, these, you know, Patty Boyd refers to them as spotty youths. Well, you know, we can't all be models, Jason. This George does recount this in the Beatles anthology and it does seem to have an effect on him. Um, and it's been a long summer, you know, like famously Paul a couple of weeks earlier has had this TV interview where he says he took LSD and that's kind of a big news story and he's the last Beatle on the LSD train and they're all, you know, John and George are like, well, we were taking it ages before you. Um, and George is a bit, George and his party are a little bit high when all of this is happening as well, which doesn't really add to the sense of you know, not being paranoid or upset or wound up about what's going on. But it's a very different kind of fan interaction to screaming people in foot, in, in baseball stadiums and, you know, you know, the girls in the British theatres up and down the street. This is a, they wouldn't have had any kind of interaction with this kind of face of their adoring public before. No, I think so. You're not going to get this in, uh, you, you know, Ipswich <laughs> or somewhere. Um, Nothing against Ipswich. You know, she... Uh, 
she she says, Patty says, uh, anyway, we got up and walked back towards our limo, at which point I heard a little voice say, hey, George, do you want some STP? I had to look mm. up what STP was. It's uh, dimethoxymethylamphetamine. Mm. That'll keep you going. That, that'll keep you going. And it, STP stands for Serenity, Tranquility and Peace. Yeah, I think that's uh, the advertising standards people might want to look into that name. That doesn't seem a good like a good time. No, so George turns around and says, no, thanks, I'm cool, man. And the guy turns around and says to the other, George Harrison turned me down. And the crowd go, no, and no. it becomes all slightly ugly and faintly hostile. And Patty says, we sense it because when you're that high, you're aware of vibes. And we were walking faster and faster and they were following. We ran across the road, jumped into the limo. They ran after us, started to rock the car. The windows were full of these faces flattened against the glass looking at us. So you can see it was an extremely scary experience. I mean, as you say, particularly if you're kind of high on LSD, that's not going to help, I imagine. And I mean, I, 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 like, history doesn't really recall how long all this took, but what, is it less than an hour for him, this experience maybe? And it just sort of changes his outlook completely? Yeah, it seems very quick. Uh, you, you know, they wander, they wander around for a little bit. He gets the guitar out. Somebody gives him a guitar. He plays a few chords, makes a pass at Baby I'm a Rich Man or Baby You're a Rich Man. And uh, yeah, then they run away, get, get, in, get in their private jet and fly home. I guess roughly at this time, All You Need Is Love is the number one record. So it's kind of the height of the summer of love. And it's the end of the summer of love, really, as far as George is concerned, because he gets back. This is the 7th of August, 67, and he gets back and he kind of shares this experience with John. This is, this is, this is the end of the hippie dream. They're selling hippie wigs and Woolworths, man. <laughs> yeah, geez, the man always has to ruin everything, doesn't he, Stephen? Um, Patty is getting involved in transcendental meditation. So uh, there's there's kind of feelings in the air that uh, perhaps, man, there has to be something else out there that has to be worth latching on to. I think, I think that's it, that they've, they've sort of, you know, had they've opened the doors of perception with the LSD and they've kind of realised, yeah, well, that's a, that's a, that's a, a fleeting glimpse of something, but there has to be something more to it uh, than that. You know, they're they're famous. They've got all the money in the world. They've done everything. They've they've taken all the drugs, and uh, it's all been very nice. But there has to be more, doesn't there? Well, cometh the moment, cometh the man, and. Uh, on the 24th of August, 1967, a Thursday, um, the Maharishi is due to give a lecture at uh, the London Hilton in Park Lane. Now, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was born Mahesh Prasad Varma in January 1918. And after graduating in physics in 1942, he became a disciple of Swami Bradhama Sarastwania, oh dear, a.k.a. Guru Dev, which sounds like a proper 1988 acid house kind of uh, name, Guru Dev. Uh, and in 1955, he uh, introduced transcendental deep meditation, or as we now call TM, to the world. And he began touring it around the world in 1958. And on that day, the 24th of August, 1967, when he meets the Beatles, he is 49 years old. 49. Yeah. You see, I, you, you asked me this before we started recording and I thought, you know, he, he's, he's, he's 103 if he's a day. He seemed persistently to be about, I don't know, 70 in his 70s, maybe, you know, he seemed like an old guru, but he's only 49, you know. But I think the advantage is it's, it's the advantage that he and I share of, you know, if you age. <laughs> Go on. If you age quickly, you know, uh, then you stay that age. You know, right. You never age. He, he, he didn't look noticeably older. The Steve Martin defence. It's the Steve Martin defence, yeah. Yes. Um, or, you know, and you can do anything with a load of hair and a beard. That's the Jeff Lynne defence as well, um, where you sort of stay ageless. Um, so the 24th of August, 1967, um, it's Lennon, Harrison and McCartney with their partners. They somehow are at this lecture in... Park Lane. It's it's a really unusual thing. It is. As Paul said, we took the wifelets. <laughs> what a classy guy. So they all head off to this uh, lecture. Uh, they spent seven shillings and sixpence each uh, on a ticket. I'm assuming somebody bought those tickets for them. You know, they're they people to do that sort of thing. Somebody in the office, yeah. Ringo is not there. 
that's uh, that's not good enough, Ringo. Why is Ringo not there? Uh, because Maureen has just on the nineteenth of August, five days before, has given birth to Jason, their hey. second second child, excellent after name, whom you are named, no <laughs> doubt. No, but actually, I might start saying that. That might, that's better than who I'm actually named after, which will remain a closely guarded secret. I do think it's important to keep in mind Ringo is not there. This is a recurring theme. This is a recurring theme. Ringo is not present. Yes. And the Maharishi has announced his intention to retire and that this was to be his last round of engagements in the West. And, you know, there's something about it that's also kind of comically mundane. Like he's just, you know, it's just some... It's just a guy renting a conference room in a hotel and people are going to a conference in a hotel. <laughs> That's kind of what it is. It's nothing special. It's not like a it's not like a special prayer room or event or anything. It's just like, you know. No, it's in, it's incredibly prosaic and you think it's like any motivational hmm. speaker or anybody trying trying to sell you double glazing <laughs> or it, it's it's very Yeah. Yeah, mundane is the word. According to Patty, it's spellbinding. You know, she specifically says Maharishi was every bit as impressive as I thought he would be. And bear in mind, she is already involved. She is the one that's bringing everybody else. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and bear in mind, she's seen the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she wakes up next to George Harrison. And yet this was still very impressive. He, the, the Maharishi is kind of saying, you know, you can, uh, you know, attain bliss through sessions of meditation and, you, you know, it wouldn't be any significant change to your working life. And I think there's kind of an easiness to it that sort of said, well, it doesn't seem like we have to do much and we get a huge benefit. That's the key here is, uh, you know, short sessions of meditation, minimal change to your working day. This won't interfere with your lifestyle mm. at all. And you will achieve almost instant bliss. So what's what's not to... What is the downside? What is the downside? You could see how seductive that would be to people, particularly in their position, where they're facing all of these pressures. You know, at least George and John seem to be approaching the point, you know, the drugs aren't enough. There's more to it than that. And then suddenly, as you say, cometh the R, cometh the man, cometh the uh, lifestyle change. Yeah, and, you know, maybe these days, you know, our radars might be a bit more attuned to, as you say, lifestyle coaches or, you know, kind of self-help books and all the rest. But that's not really a, a, a thing in 1967. So, you know, in some ways, this is when people are experiencing the Beatles going through this, they're getting insight into this kind of guru leadership, self-help, meditation thing for the first time. It, there's, there's not much of a frame of reference in the great British public or the worldwide public at the time for what they are doing per se. No, I think that I think that's this. This is a point that will will sort of recur across the next eighteen months. That um, there's a little bit of a disconnect starting to develop between what they're doing, how it is perceived in the press, what the public think, and just generally what the reaction is. I mean, you know, we're used to it now. You know, celebrities, actors, singers are, are you know, uh, yeah. involved in one thing or another. And it, you just take that. It's it's part of the celebrity lifestyle. Um, well, the celebrity having a role in their lifestyle and your lifestyle is now just part and parcel of the business. This is the Beatles kind of introducing that concept that their lifestyle is also part of the deal. If you want to listen to the records and enjoy them, there's a lifestyle that they can steer you towards as well. So we're saying that the Beatles invented Gwyneth Paltrow. I think the Beatles invented goop and funny smelling candles. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> um, I like Paul's comment. So whereas uh, Paddy Boyd is spellbound, Paul says uh, Maharishi came to a hall in London and we all got tickets and sat down near the front row. There was a lot of flowers on the stage. He came on, sat cross-legged. He looked great. He talked very well, started to explain. I still think his idea is fine. It's all quite matter of fact. Well, that's in the 90s and many years from now. And there's a recurring thing that people should also start looking at now as we uh, discuss this of Paul going, oh yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, okay. That's kind of his general take to all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. There's none of this. I was struck to my core with a deep sense of spiritualism and longing of being of one with the universe. It's basically Paul is consistently throughout all of this going. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Grand. Okay. I think at this time, you know, we 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 
sort of know that Paul is uh, involved in the theatre, involved in, you know, avant-garde music. He is educating himself and he's just moving from thing to thing, from flower to flower, Jason. <laughs> Sampling what's on offer, taking what he needs and then moving on to the next thing. And I... I you know, I think that's commendable. Yeah, well, also, the other thing is that Paul already has a route to bliss, which is recording another top hit single, which is kind of enough for him, really. He does seem to be the one, you know, and again, this is maybe the point at which while everyone else is starting to get a little bit bored, a little bit, uh, you know, searching, curious about there must be something more. Paul, you do have a sense uh, through the whole back end of their career, quite happy. Yeah, with uh, being Paul, Paul McCartney, who wouldn't? Be? <laughs> um, so they have a private meeting with the Maharishi afterwards, and and this is the other thing that starts to recur over the next nine months, which is the Maharishi very quickly. Uh, if you're being cynical about it, you can say he sees a value in having the Beatles on board as an advertising message for his movement. Uh, but the flip side of it is, if you're not cynical about it, you could say. You know, he is he he is a man of his faith who is dedicated to his message and he wants to get it to as many people as possible. And so why wouldn't he, you know, use, not necessarily use, but, you know, bring the Beatles on board to try and transmit what he believes in. So that's kind of the nice way of looking. Yes, I mean, there does seem to be some uh, different takes on was he aware of who the Beatles were, you, you know, when they were sitting there. We know they were sitting near the front. Uh, we know they had a 90-minute audience with him privately after the talk, so it's hard to credit that he didn't know who they were or didn't really appreciate what they could bring uh, to his organisation. If if when the Maharishi woke up on the 24th of August 1967 and didn't know who the Beatles were, he certainly knew by the time he went to bed that night yeah. who the Beatles were. That's definitely my sense of it. Um, because why else would he have a private 90-minute session with them? Um, you know, he wouldn't be doing that for any kind of randomers in the audience who are just paying their, how much was it, seven shillings and sixpence, you know? Um, so, But the, the, the ramifications are that they just changed their plans. This is another thing which is really startling because they the, the trip to Bangor is the next day. Yeah. So it's not like a week away no. or the next month. It's the next day and they're all in. Yeah. So he says to them at this 90 minute, sure, why don't you come to Bangor for 10 days? <laughs> and you think, uh, you, you know, we at the point when we started, you know, week in Beatle time. Yeah is like six months or a year in anybody else's time. But here they are, are on the basis of a lecture and a 90-minute private conversation. They are going to drop everything. They are going to cancel a recording session. And they are going to go and sleep in a bunk bed in a dormitory in Bangor for 10 days. <laughs> it is 10 days and it's it's the it's the start of a bank holiday weekend and because of subsequent events I think people kind of think that they were supposed to be just there for the weekend but it is a 10-day trip that is planned and it does feed into this you know post candlestick park universe of the Beatles where well once they've done Sgt Pepper this kind of go well what do we do what do we do next or what is the you know where do we go what are the things that we attach ourselves to um you know we've come we've stopped touring we've done a big record that you know, isn't involved with touring now, what do we do? And this is one of the things that they do. Yes. Um, one of my favourite quotes is from John Lennon in 1967. And he says, uh, Sin and I were thinking of going to Libya until this came up. Libya or Bangor? <laughs> well, there's no choice, was there? So it's it's as casual as that. We're, we're you know, we're going to cancel our trip to Libya and we're going to go to Bangor. Ringo goes, he wasn't even at the lecture. He just presumably gets a phone call that night to say, Pack your bag, leave your wife and child. Uh, we're yeah. we're going to Bangor for ten days, and he turns up, and they, you know, they also have time mm -hmm. to invite Mick Jagger, Marianne Faithful, Cilla Black, <laughs> Jenny Boy, um, like Cilla Black, really. I think the sixty the sixties were wasted on Cilla Black. <laughs> they, they they really they really were. I have I have written in my notes they rounded up all of these superstars and Cilla Black on. Less than twenty four hours notice. There's, you know, the the the, the Mick Jagger 
in 67. I know he had his legal problems and all the rest, but there's still, um, it's still curious about how close they are to the Beatles during that year, kind of keeping an eye on them, aping them, following them almost. You know, they haven't become that thing yet. And uh, this is a, another version of it. And very sweetly, you know, uh, George sort of says in Anthology, you know, when they were going to the Hilton to, to see it, he, you know, he wanted to get a mantra. And as we always seem to do everything together, John and Paul just came with me. So, you know, this is Patty pulls George, George pulls John and Paul, John and Paul go to the Hilton and they say next day and they pull in Ringo, Mick Jagger, Marion Faithful, Jenny Boyd and surprise, surprise, Scylla Black. You would like to, to hear Scylla Black's take on that weekend, wouldn't you? <laughs> Um, and Brian and Brian Epstein is intending to come down on the Monday. That is the plan. So this isn't done in a vacuum outside of Brian. Brian, although he doesn't seem to know, or he wasn't at the the Park Lane Hilton event, he is on the guest list. He is brought down to 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 go to Bangor with them. So he's not being excluded at all. And this this is the first time they really do anything without Brian, although he's there. They've just made this decision on the spur of the moment. Uh, you, you know, they have their entourage, to, to their fixers to organise things for them, but they're basically going on a solo run here and saying to Brian, this is great, come and join us. In the same way that, you know, we take an LSD, you should take LSD. And Brian is there and he's part of that and he's keeping up with what they're doing. Yeah. And irrespective of anything else, you know, it's going to be a nice little break. And speaking of nice little breaks, we're going to take one right now. End of part one. Intermission. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So it's Friday the 25th of August, 1967, hours after uh, Paul, George and um, John have listened to the Maharishi in the Park Lane Hilton and they are trying to get on a train to Bangor. And um, the train to Bangor is... uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's not a quick train. <laughs> Bangor is on the north coast of Wales. If you can imagine, it's just about fifty miles inland from that sort of bit on the top left of Wales, and gets a lot of rain. Um, but this is where they plan to spend the next ten days, and it's amazing how quickly word has spread because there's reporters there, and it's it's chaos at the train station. Yeah, there's reporters, photographers, television. Cruise. It's already been called the the mystical special. <laughs> uh, this is this is London's Euston station. Late afternoon of a bank holiday weekend. I imagine the train service was a little suspect yeah. on bank holiday weekend as well. You know, people go to Bangor on you know with a bucket and a spade for a seaside holiday, bank holiday. That's also on the route to the car ferry in Hollyhead. You know. Yeah, nobody nobody was doing that in in the late sixties. Uh, <laughs> Should there were ferries? I'd have to <laughs> I'd have to talk to a transport podcast to find out. And it was so bad they had to carry their own luggage uh, because there were no assistants or porters or anything. And it's just a scrum. And there's that very famous scene where Cynthia gets left behind. Mm. Um, you know, there are so many people and the police are holding people back and they don't know who Cynthia is. Actually, they think she's a fan. And yeah. And because there's so many press there, it's all captured and it is heartbreaking to see. And it's foreshadowing and, you know, it really is. You just feel really sorry for her in that moment, you know? Well, except, you know, she gets to be chauffeur driven to Bangor by uh, 
Um, Peter, Peter Brown. Peter Brown, yeah. Pe Instead of having to get on a crowded uh, train. But Cynthia writes about this. And um, Peter Brown had come to see us off. He put his arm around me and said he'd take me to Bangor by car. We'd probably get there before the train, he assured me, anxious to cheer me up. But what neither he nor anyone else knew was that my tears were not simply about the missed train. I was crying because the incident seemed symbolic of what was happening to my marriage. John was on the train, speeding into the future, and I was left oh, behind. If, if, if you saw it in a movie, you would think it's, uh, it was too obvious. <laughs> and, uh, of course, it is in a movie. It's uh, parodied, oh, yeah. parodied in the ruttles. So George, George, who was you know a sort of technical advisor, obviously thought, no, that's hilarious. Put that into the... <laughs> Put my friend's collapsing marriage into that funny Monty Python film. So they're all, they're all squeezed into the boxcar of the train, like that scene on Hard Day's Night with the luggage. Or, they're not. No, no they actually yes. go to the first, class, the first class carriage with the Maharishi. <laughs> this is another recurring theme throughout the whole Maharishi escapades is that the Beatles get special treatment all yeah. the time. Yeah. And they're in the first class carriage, you know, trying to, you know, enjoy the first class uh, branch of spiritualism, you know. Um, the, the other recurring theme is that there's very much a John and George connection throughout this whole process, that Paul is kind of taking what he wants from it, um, which we mentioned a minute ago. But John and George are thick as thieves, actually, throughout most of this. They spend the most time together on this and take it seriously, maybe a little bit differently, because um, John isn't, like, learning the names of all the gurus and all the rest. But... Um, he is. He does think that it's got potential as a pathway to some form of of insight. Marianne Faithful, who is there, she makes the observation. Said George and Paddy were the real spiritual seekers. Lennon also, in his own way, which is the point that you're you're making. Uh, and she said, but McCartney was very cynical about the venture. Hmm. Yeah, it's just this Paul kind of you know. I'll just do it the way it suits me, and I'll just add it to the bric-a-brac of things that I experience in life. Yeah, hmm. he's, he's, he's the practical guy. Hmm. So, as there were crowds in London, there's also crowds in Bangor. And they're going off to, um, you know, stay in Bangor Normal College, which is like some kind of, <laughs> I don't know, very, it, yeah. It, it, yeah, but why, why would you, Bangor Normal College? Where does that come from? So that you could say, I got my degree from a normal college. I mean, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, not a, not a fancy college. But... Um, it's it's a uh, it's 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 very kind of mundane again environment that they're in. It is. I don't know if you ever done that. We used to go on school trips and stay in other schools, you know, in boarding yeah. schools that were empty, and it was a horrible, horrible experience. You know, it was cold and uh, uh, you know rather soulless place. And they're they're in dormitories. They're sleeping in bunk beds. This is not. There is no luxury once they. Once they get there, but you you have got to wonder. There are three hundred people there, and you think how many people got bumped <laughs> off that course, so that um, John and George and Paul and Ringo and Marianne and Mick and Silla Black. You'd be annoyed if you were bumped off a transcendental meditation course so that Silla Black could go. <laughs> yes, I would, and I've said that many a time. Um, and and. Paul sort of says, oh, it's going to, it's like going back to school, staying in a classroom, um, you know, staying on a little old camp bed and trying to learn how to meditate. You, you, you kind of feel Paul, you know, he, he kind of, once he gets to India, he has the same kind of view. He, he might have been good in the army, Paul. You know, here I am, you know, just following orders, sleeping in my little camp bed, sh shining my shoes, doing all right. But what, um, what, what he says is, it's not that easy. You don't just pick it up like that. It's an effort and you've got to be involved. So it was like going back to school. And of course, the food was all canteen food, but we were interested enough to learn the system. Which we did. <laughs> um, so George Harrison says in 1967, he tries to explain exactly what they're trying to, to get at. So he says, um, each person's life pulsates in a certain rhythm. So they give you a word or sound known as a mantra, which pulsates with that rhythm. By using the mantra, you transcend to the subtlest level of thought. The mantra becomes more subtle and more subtle until finally you've lost even the mantra. And then you find yourself at that level of pure consciousness. It's a very interesting and different take from Paul's take. It's a, yes, he is earnestly 
sincere and honest and really, really, you know, is leading out on this. And, um, you know, it seems that it uh, doesn't cost much to get involved in the whole transcendental meditation vibe, according to John. No, they are asked to donate one week's wages. So I'm not quite sure. How would you what, calculate how you that? Calculate, yes. <laughs> how would you calculate that? Um, but but Lennon says this is the fairest thing I've ever heard of. We'll make a donation. We'll ask for money from anyone we know with money. Anyone in the so-called establishment who's worried about kids going wild and drugs and all that. Another groovy thing. Everybody gives one week's wages when they join, and that's all you ever pay, just once. And you'll see he's linking this. You know, if you're worried about. Going, kids going wild and drugs and all of that. This is the alternative. This is the way to avoid that. So I, I checked uh, what what it costs today. Um, so if you want to be initiated, it's a one-off upfront payment of £600, but there are discounts if you're a student or a low earner. Okay, well, check the petty cash, see what's going on. Uh, Maybe get, that get that seems, uh, seems reasonable enough. Um, but as as you say, they've travelled without Brian Epstein, which Lennon said it was, it was like going somewhere without your trousers on. And uh, they must have donated their week's wages when they went to a Chinese restaurant. Yes. So they don't, you know, much like the Queen, they don't carry money. And they all went out with Mick and Marianne and they went to the senior Chinese restaurant <laughs> uh, in Bangor. I bet there's a plaque there. <laughs> yeah, there probably is. And Hunter Davis is there, of course. He's, he's with them researching uh, the book, and he says, uh, when the bill came, we couldn't pay. The Chinese waiter amazingly didn't recognise them, and he was afraid we were going to do a runner. Suddenly, George put his foot on the table and opened the sole of his sandal, where he had hidden a £20 note. The Beatles were like the royal family. They didn't have money, didn't use money, but George had put this £20 note there for just this sort of situation. I like that story a lot, that George just has a magic 20 quid hiding on his person. Very wise. Do you know how much that is in today's money? Um, it's probably probably 300 quid or something, is it? I don't know. Exactly, 300 quid. So it's like hey. wandering, around, wandering around today with 300 quid in your shoe. Which is a, you know, a good sum of money to have. That would cover a lot of options, 300 quid, if you had an emergency, 300 quid to yep. reach for at any, any point in time. So we, we mock Paul for being the practical one, but who's got 20 quid in his shoe? George? Perhaps Paul had the 20 quid, but just wasn't going to take his shoe off. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't going to share it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah, it's something very sort of Avengers about having a sh money compartment in your shoe, or maybe it's more get smart. Um, the following day is Saturday, the 26th of August, 1967. And the Beatles, you know, again, 36 hours into this adventure, they call a press conference and say, hey guys, you know, we're all in and uh, we are giving up hallucinogenic drugs. Thank you. And uh, as you say, think, th this is only a matter of five or six weeks since Paul has been on the TV saying, hallucinogenic drugs, they're great. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're fantastic. And now they're, they're giving it up. Just, just to be clear, they're just giving up. Hallucinogens. Not. The dynamite weed. Not the dynamite weed, no. So that's going to stay on board. And, and they, they're saying that this is a collective decision in keeping with the Maharishi's uh, teachings and it's it's all of a sudden they're just you know it's three weeks not even since George has had that experience in Haight Ashbury and he's saying LSD isn't an answer it doesn't give you anything you know um, it, you, you don't just take LSD and that kind of transform you together you have to do it straight and I want to get high and you can't get high on LSD and so he's kind of you know reaching to try and get this other thing which he thinks the the Maharishi is going to deliver. Yeah, so this this as I say it seems to be that they have come to this decision ahead or at least George has communicated this to John. John has picked this up. But again, it's a collective decision. Mm. Suddenly they're all there. They're at the press conference. You know, Paul is saying um uh, you know it was an experience we went through. It's over. We don't need it. We're finding other ways of getting there. So they're all taking the same line that this is a replacement uh, for drugs, basically. And, and and a bit of foreshadowing kind of of his later kind of more proactiveness, John says, you know, don't believe that jazz. 
about there's nothing you can do and to turn on and just drop out, man, because you've got to turn on and drop in or they're going to drop all over you. And that, that sounds like 1969 John Lennon in a way, you know? It does. It does. Uh, and my other kind of favourite quote from there is um, George Harrison, which uh, says, uh, we don't know how this will come out in the music. Don't expect to hear transcendental meditation all the time. We don't want this thing to come out like Cliff and Billy Graham. Um, and I found that fascinating because he's talking about Cliff Richard, obviously, who um, is, you know, kingpin of British rock and roll, but also a very high profile Christian. And in the 60s was affiliated with Billy Graham, who had some very successful tours, um, you know, uh, of his um, evangelical preaching in the UK. And Cliff was on board with all of that. But the kind of subtext to all of that is that Christianity is square and it's a really backwards way of getting at the we're bigger than Jesus to actually say something like that to to say you know religion is cool but actually our religion is cooler than Cliff or whatever George is trying to get at. Yes I mean it is interesting and the other thing to bear in mind is you know George will go down that route so yes you know in the early 70s he gets criticized for this uh that it becomes the music becomes quite preachy uh, you know he's lecturing people from the stage so so the irony is but i'd argue that george was preacher than cliff richard ever was so so this is well you've never been at one of cliff's gospel concerts i have not have you no but i've okay. i know he gives <laughs> these gospel concerts but but okay. you know george george does become in the music can be a little preachy mm. uh, i'm i'm you know you're you're supposed to be Team Paul and I'm Team George, <laughs> but I will say that, and uh, there is a certain certain irony uh, to it. But at the same time, this does give transcendental meditation a yep. huge lift in terms of uh, its profile, its cultural impact. And you, you said at the beginning, Maharishi was expected to retire at this point, but you know he's just beginning. Now, as we've covered in our Brian uh, Epstein episode, you know, it's the following day on the Sunday that they get word at the camp in Bangor that Brian has um, passed away. And as we said in that episode, you know, they are in shock at the time. And the 10 days that are planned in Bangor are cut short. But the background plan is that they're going to, you know, at some point visit uh, the training centre in, in, in Rishikesh. But the other thing that happens is that, you know, George becomes essentially somebody who goes out canvassing on behalf of the Maharishi. The, he starts to bring in all these people. And if the point of the Maharishi getting the Beatles involved and the Beatles getting involved in return was to spread the word and to get people involved, it's it's hugely successful. And I think George, out of the four of them, is possibly the only one who, who goes out to bring in other named people. I think I think this is this is true. I think this is true. This gives a huge boost to the movement, and uh, he's now known as the Beatles' guru. He sets off on a world tour. This is his eighth mm. world tour. So he's in Britain, Scandinavia, West Germany, Italy, Canada, California. So he's traveling, but he's traveling with this tag of the Beatles' approval. You know, he's mm. got their seal. Of approval, um, George introduces Dennis Wilson uh, from the Beach Boys to the Maharishi when he and Lennon are in Paris in December, and Al Jardine talks about the fact that uh, he was visited in in his hotel room when they were touring, and he said uh, John and George were proselytizing on behalf of TM. They suggested we get involved with the program. They would see us in Paris because they were going to be with the Maharishi at this huge concert. Um, so this is what happens. In January 68, the Beach Boys attend the Maharishi's appearances in New York and Cambridge, Massachusetts. He invites Mike Love, you know, come to India. The Beatles are coming next year or, or later in the year. Um, they're all photographed with the Maharishi in New York by uh, Linda Eastman. It's all connected, isn't it? It's just all connected. It is all connected. And of course, we can't leave this topic without mentioning Donovan. Yes, and so the one and only Harry Georgeson is the person who actually gets Donovan Maharishi'd, basically. 
Pretty much. Donovan would say that he and George avidly read Hindu spiritual texts and discussed meditation as a way to achieve higher consciousness. Mm. Um, but they lacked the method and they lacked a guide until meeting the Maharishi. But it does seem to be that George gets there first. Mm. Um, and broadly speaking, you know, even indirectly, the Maharishi's following just goes up about tenfold. It seems there's about 150,000 people are estimated by the end of the year have signed up to the TM uh, following of the Maharishi and, and other artists are just following by example. So the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane um, are also kind of hitching their wagon to some of this. Yeah. Now, you, you think today TM and, uh, and is commonplace, you know, across the world, but we're saying it jumped tenfold, so from 15,000 yeah. to 150,000. That was the impact. And then those seeds, as Donovan would say, have spread <laughs> across the world. But it all, it all hinges on that very, very short period of time where suddenly he gets the Beatles' seal of approval. And, um, uh, you know, he is using this to spread the word. And November 67, The Village Voice says it now looks as though the Maharishi may become more popular than the Beatles. Yeah, it's it's a very fast ascent. Um, there is a note here that the Maharishi did advise the Beatles privately to avoid involvement with ban the bomb movements and to support the elected government of the day. So, you know. Civ civic <laughs> responsibility was... Uh, well, cool. yeah, I, I think may, maybe he was Irish. That's a very much don't be causing any trouble kind of attitude that uh, that kind of pervades, you know. Uh, don't be drawing any attention to yourself now. Don't be doing any of that kind of stuff. But they do draw attention because, again, it's so fast. You know, one month after the Park Lane and, and Bangor incident and having dealt with um, Brian's passing, they're on telly being full-on disciples for the Maharishi with David Frost. And again, it's this very... Um, striking pairing of just George and John on David Frost, and they're they're on two weeks in a row. Yeah, so 29th September 1967, they're being interviewed specifically on this, you know, experience that they're having. Uh, the the uh, TM. So you think they're pop stars? Yeah. They're just pop stars, and they're on, you know, late night TV talking about religion. And John is very John. You know, he says Buddha was a groove. Jesus was all right. Um, George, I believe in reincarnation. Life and death are still only relative to thought. I believe in rebirth. You keep coming back until you've got it straight. The ultimate thing is to manifest divinity and become one with the creator. And you think, this is, this is 18 months ago. You, you know, they're just pop stars. They're just mop-top pop stars. And now... This is the sort of language that they're using. This is these are the topics their opinions are being sought on 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 this, and the world is paying attention. You know, the establishment, serious people are paying attention. Mm. Now, George obviously has had within you, without you, and you know he has kind of shown his spiritual side already. But here he is, kind of broadening it out into a physical, religious form, you could say, and. Um, on that first David Frost show, there's also a filmed interview with the, the Maharishi himself. I, I do wonder, you know, there's that famous quote where the Queen even says the Beatles are awfully funny these days, whether it's this David Frost show is the thing that she was alluding to or that she might have seen at the time. That hadn't occurred to me, but I think that could well, that mm. could well be the case. The timing yeah. is right. The timing is right for that. Um, and yeah, they said they're on the following week answering audience letters uh, that have been posted into to David Frost and, you know, take part in a discussion with, um, you know, people who are for and against, um, you know, meditation. It's, it's very curious indeed. It's they are they are suddenly the spokesman yeah. uh, for this for this religion and for this uh, this organization. And they are going to India in yes. late October. That's the plan. Um, so again, you, 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 the speed of this, so late August, uh, late September, exactly a month later, uh, 29th September, they're on, on TV. And the plan is end of October, another four weeks will go by and they'll be in India. 
Now, the the other thing, though, that's happening at the same time, though, is Magical Mystery Tour now. Magical Mystery yes. Tour might be another podcast for a, a, another day. And it's curious that when a beetle appears on David Frost again, it's Paul on his own defending Magical Mystery Tour um, right after Christmas. Um, but the, the India Tour is the goal of their time with the Maharishi. But other things get involved and it's it seems repeatedly the business of being the Beatles has to come first. So Magical Mystery Tour ends up trumping the October departure. Yes, so it does seem to be that Paul is urging them to postpone this trip until the new year so they can get this film project done. And it, again, we touched on this. He is very concerned about the loss of Brian mm. Epstein and the effect of their career. And, you know, without getting into cod psychology you know the maharishi comes along at precisely the moment mm. they lose brian yeah and I, I, you know sometimes you do drift into the the what if questions you know if if brian had lived and had visit you know had joined the maharishi on the following monday it's very hard to figure what might have played out you know brian probably would have gone along with it and gotten involved but he also would have tried to keep the 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 physical performance side and the record releasing side of the beatles in check as well i think so i mean we know that brian did make comments about george and this sitar and well yes this is all very well but you know um this this is it's all very well you're not going to make a career out of it you know you're not going to make a living out of it so yeah you 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 think he brian is probably likely to have been torn i would have thought between an inherent skepticism of what was yeah. going on but also wanting to share the experience with the boys the the plan to go to india in october gets bumped but there is a trip made in october to see the maharishi that sometimes doesn't fly high on the on the radar and they go to that very holiest of holy places checks notes sweden why are they in sweden well they're 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 actually to try and rein in the maharishi a little bit he has been publicizing the fact that the beatles are coming to india and really, the Beatles' name is becoming more and more part of his publicity machine. Yes. And, uh, you know, there's a lot going on at this time that the Maharishi is very aware now of the value of having the Beatles associated with him. And he is, I mean, I don't want to say he's trying to exploit that because that carries a sort of overtone with it, but he is... He, he senses the opportunity to promote uh, mm. transcendental meditation. And I think there was, it seems to be a sense that uh, he was sort of overreaching himself. You know, he was committing that, saying the Beatles would be doing such and such a thing or would be taking part in such and such a thing. And he wants a Beatles movie. He wants the Beatles in a kind of a movie. And mm. he wants a movie. Yeah. And I mean, this is, they're making their own movie. They haven't agreed to do a, a, a TM movie. And uh, so, yeah, so Paul and George fly out uh, to um, Sweden to uh, just explain the situation. And it's, 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 it's one of the few kind of George and Paul moments in the Maharishi. And it, it, it's, it's almost like George from the spiritual side and Paul from the business side are going to meet the Maharishi. And so he's staying in um, Falsterbro, a seaside resort uh, in southern Sweden near Malmo. And um, off they go. And it's what Peter Brown and Dennis O'Dell uh, apparently go. And it's basically to have a, a little sit down with the Maharishi to say, please stop using us as your... PR. Yes. And bear in mind, Dennis O'Dell is Apple's movie guy. Mm. So, you know, that, that seems to be the... Uh... The movie angle. Yeah. Um, and the Maharishi just sort of nods and giggles. He was the giggling guru, apparently, and he, that was his thing. He was a giggling guru. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that seems to be his uh, trademark, is the giggle. Yes. Uh, much, much like he's the Alma Kogan. <laughs> Of, uh, she she was the girl with the giggle. And he's in her the voice. guru with the giggle in his voice. Um, so Peter Brown's book quotes um, George as saying, uh, "He, the Maharishi, he's not a modern man." Um, he says on the plane ride back from Sweden, he just doesn't understand these things. So he's giving him the benefit of the doubt, which I don't know. It's not the not the best thing to do. I think I think the jury is probably out there. You know. Yes. Um, I 
don't have any doubt that he was he he saw the value of having the Beatles on board. Yeah. I mean that that's self self evident. Um, but I do think suspect he probably was a little bit naive um, in in terms of what he was saying and and. Uh, yeah, they still they, they, they still they postponed their plan. They didn't cancel their plan. So what happens in, in its place is obviously um, Christmas 1967 is Magical Mystery Tour plus the Hello Goodbye single and they're at number uh, two and one in the charts respectively at, uh, in Britain across Christmas and there's the fallout from Magical Mystery Tour but it influenced Steven Spielberg so that's what Paul tells us these days and that's the important thing to remember. And then at the start of 1968 there's six weeks before they go to uh, six or seven weeks before they go to India. And we've covered that in a totally separate episode called Early 1968. So feel free to pause this episode right now, go listen to that episode and then come back. But what they are trying to do is to get everything ready and organised for the trip to India. And just to synopsize, what's happening in the first part of 1968 is George is already in India. He's doing Wonderwall music and he's putting together that soundtrack. He's immersed in the culture, he's immersed in the music with the Indian musicians and he comes back with a piece of music that turns into the inner light. Yeah, so he, as you say, he's he's completely immersed uh, in, in all aspects of Indian um, culture. And uh, I think there's a sense that he's expecting the Beatles to fly out while he's in India. So he has to come back. Uh, they, they, they record the Lady Madonna to leave while they're away and then they prepare to leave uh, in February 68. So they've twice delayed um, this trip. Yeah, I think George, the notion from George was that it would be contiguous um, and that they would be there at the start of what was supposed to be a 10-week retreat, um, which yeah. they are not there for the start of. And instead, to, even though they've just had a movie and a number one single, it's time to spend a few days in the studio. And that's when Lady Madonna gets put together along with Hey Bulldog and... Um, across the universe. Um, but eventually they do decide to bite the bullet and it's time to go to India. And this brings us to February uh, 1968. And um, the Maharishi has his camp set up, this ashram. Um, and that's been set up for a, a couple of years. It's been there since about 1963 that, uh, that it's built. Do I get to do my uh, my background story on the building of the ashram? This is a great story. Well, this is a great story, and you know, no no piece of detail is 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 uh, you know <laughs> too small to be focused in on here. On nothing is real, um, but but yeah, it's all about all about the tangent. Yeah, he he, he, he basically at the end of the fifties, the Maharishi is lecturing around the world, and he has this plan, you know, that he wants to build this ashram, and he attracts. Uh, you know, the Beatles weren't the first people with money in their back pocket to kind of think, oh, this man is fantastic and he can solve the gaping void in my soul. Um, uh, and so when he's looking to build the ashram, where does he get his money from? He does what any self-respecting uh, guru would do. He finds wealthy American socialites <laughs> uh, to, to to donate. And um, two of these in particular that we'll... we'll Mention and this really comes out of his uh, 1959-1960 tour. One is uh, Nancy Cook de Herrera. Mm -hmm. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And the other is uh, Doris Duke. I was very excited when I read that because I know Doris Duke as a soul singer uh, to the other woman. I'm the other woman, and I thought, you know, this is. But it's a different. Uh, it's not that Doris Duke. It's not that Doris Duke. It's uh, uh, the richest girl in the world. Uh, she was known as uh, in the late fifties, a tobacco, a billionaire tobacco hmm. heiress, philanthropist, art collector, horticulturalist, and socialite. Hmm. And she gives $100,000 in 1963 to build the Maharishi's uh, ashram in Rishikesh, which is equivalent of about $920,000 in today money. And so this person seems to have been a very beautiful soul without any uh, spot on their consciousness at all. She is great. She donates funds later in life to support AIDS research, hmm. medicine, child welfare, education of students in the South who were disadvantaged because of racism. $1.3 billion was left in her will and she left it all to charity. So, yeah, an all-round good egg, except for something that happened in 1966. Oh, dear. 
Go on. This involved Eduardo <laughs> Terella, who is the curator of her art holdings. And he'd been in that post for about 10 years. And he decides to leave that post for a career in Hollywood. He flies to Doris's house in Newport um, on the 6th of October, 1966, ostensibly to collect his belongings and let her know that he was leaving her employ. His friends had warned him that she would not take this well. And boy, she did not take this well. The staff hear an argument, then they get into their rented car to leave. Now, in Doris Duke's account of events, she said, Torella, who was driving, got out of the gate to open it, left the engine running, but with the handbrake, the parking brake, engaged. Duke moved from the passenger seat to the driver's seat in order to drive the car forward, all seems perfectly plausible, and to pick Torella up once the gate was open. But to do this, she releases the handbrake, shifts into drive, and hits the gas by mistake, pinning Torella against the opening gates, knocking him over, and then the car hits a tree on the other side of the road. Torella is found trapped under the car and was pronounced dead shortly thereafter. A tragic, tragic mm. accident. Yes, well, the police initially rule it as accidental. The family sue for wrongful death. and But that's not really the end of the story. That's not really the end of the story. They, they do get uh, damages, £75,000. But in 2020, Peter Lance, a Newport journalist, reinvestigated the case and wrote about it in Vanity Fair. And he found initially the file on the case and the transcripts of the wrongful death suit are all missing. Hmm. What papers were there seemed to indicate there was a conflict of interest. So, for example, shortly before the medical examiner arrived at the hospital, Doris Duke hired him as her personal physician. So he is literally on the way to uh, carry out a crime scene investigation. And she says, uh, would you like to be my doctor? You're my doctor now. So patient confidentiality, anything she told him was protected. Now, I'm no lawyer, Jason. No. But that doesn't seem right. <laughs> Are you not? Okay. <laughs> um, the, the, the account of the incident changes from time to time, inconsistent with the evidence. Also, she begins making donations to the city, repairs various walks, uh, public walks, um, donates to the hospital. Uh, the police chief retired to Florida within a year, uh, buying two nice condominiums. He was succeeded <laughs> as chief by the t detective who'd investigated the incident instead of his boss, who would have been next in line. So the whole thing, what do you think? I think um, it doesn't pass the smell test, Stephen. I think it stinks. Nothing to see. Nothing to see here. <laughs> nothing to see here. My God, she's gotten to you too. Um, <laughs> Move along, plus expenses. Good Lord, that's uh, that's quite a story. So um, that's that's quite nice, but it's important to point out she donated the money to build the ashram before any of that nastiness happened. She did. So, you know, it's 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 it's, it's all good. Um, so they've delayed their trip. They fly out in February 1968 and they fly out in two groups. Again, it's John and George in one group with Cynthia and Patty Boyd and Jenny Boyd. And they arrive in Delhi on the 15th of February. Mal Evans, bless him, is already there. Oh, that's, I mean, they, they sent Mal out, you know, we're coming to India, just go and sort stuff go out. Go and make the beds, get an anvil, whatever. Um, and then four days later, it's uh, uh, Ringo and Paul with Jane Asher and Maureen. I'm sure somebody's minding the kids at home. Uh, they land on the 19th of February. So there's that John and George and Paul and Ringo split again. And... Because there was, there's press there when Paul and Ringo get there because John and George have already landed and people kind of know the, the deal. So uh, the, the press are alerted to the fact that, that, uh, that there's going to be the second party coming. But the first party arrives and um, I, I'm, I've already put this to uh, Mark Lewison yes. and I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep hammering away at this. There is a report in the Times of India which says... An hysterical mob of Delhi's teenagers gave the mop-headed, lovable Beatles a tumultuous welcome. As soon as the announcement of their arrival came over the amplifier system, this is the important quote, the teenagers ran helter-skelter, yelling and shouting, they are here, they are here. <laughs> so I'll just read that again. The teenagers ran helter-skelter, 
So I just, just helter skelter. Helter skelter. That's, um, that rings a bell, I have to admit. I think Paul, you know, Paul is a man that reads his own publicity, wouldn't you think? He's bound yes. to have gathered up the Times of India. They arrive um, subsequently uh, on the 19th, four days later. He's, he reads that. That's a phrase that would stick in your stick. In it your would mind, do. I think were. it's, you know, even if even if it's indirectly, it certainly feeds into that notion of their their minds are open and there are things happening that have all these knock on effects at exactly. at least exactly. Um, so when Paul and Ringo arrive, they are uh, stuck overnight in Delhi and they travel to Rishikesh early on the twentieth of February. So. The, this course has already been going on three weeks. It started at the end of January, when I think they probably should have been there for the start. And it's due to be a, a course that continues on um, for the 25th of April. So they've missed the first three weeks of the course. But, you know, again, one rule for the Beatles in, in, in the Maharishi universe, they can kind of do what they want. Absolutely, absolutely. And what we should say is Ringo, the first thing that Mal has to do when he arrives is take him to a doctor because he's had a, re a reaction to one of his uh, vaccinations. Poor Ringo. Uh, it kind of sets sets the tone, I think, for what will And who else there? Mal is there, Neil Aspinall is there, and then a few weeks later, Magic Alex rocks up. Wouldn't be a party without Magic Alex. The band is all there. Um, and that's when the magic happens. But that is also where we're going to draw a line under end of part one of the Beatles uh, with the Maharishi. And so for part two, we're obviously going to stay in India and go through what happens in India and what happens next. Um, so, so join us next week. We remain in all the usual places. The uh, the website, nothingisrealpod.com, which is your portal to all the stuff. Twitter at BeatlesPod, the Nothing's Real Facebook group. Um, it's a private group, so Stephen will let you in. We're hitting about 6,000 people now. Um, yes, and... Uh, also, bonus episodes throughout all this season um, on ACAS Plus um, for, for supporters on the It's All Too Much tier. And we thank you all. All those details are at nothingisrealpod.com. But for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 